Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. I'm sorry, I said 28. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew is the first gospel, the first book in the New Testament. And Matthew is full of the teachings of Jesus, both in parables and in discourse, talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a label used to describe the authority that God has over his people. It's not just referring to heaven, it's referring to any place where God's people are and where God's authority reigns through them. And in Matthew chapter 18, we are going to see Jesus describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we see in verse 23, this is how Jesus describes his reign of his people. It says that, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The parable here is describing the two greatest commandments. The first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything. But the second commandment is like the first commandment. That just as you want to love God because you need his mercy and his forgiveness, you also should treat others with mercy and forgiveness. You should treat others the way that you would want God to treat you. Your vertical relationship should impact your horizontal relationships. God intends that his relationship with you not just be for your own benefit, but to also benefit the people that God has put around you. Is that true in your life? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
by faith alone, by repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have that relationship with God, are others around you blessed and benefited because of your relationship with God and how God uses that through you to impact others? You pray for God to have mercy on you. Are you merciful towards others? You may not realize it, but God is desperately, amazingly, abundantly so patient with you and with me. Are you patient with others? Turn with me now to Philemon. Because Philemon is a letter by Paul to a slave master who is now being instructed, both him and his entire church family, on how they should think about this runaway slave who is also a believer and is now returning to Colossae. And Paul is going to repeat a same general concept that we see all throughout the Bible, that as a result of God saving you, God will use that relationship through you to positively impact other people. Even Abraham, when God gave his covenant to Abraham, it wasn't just for land, it wasn't just for blessing, it wasn't just for a descendant, but it was also so that through you, all the nations might be blessed. God wanted to use his special covenant family of Abraham, the Israelites, to impact and bless those around him. We see that with Joseph, how Egypt and the nations were blessed through God's faithfulness to this one family. And so too in Philemon, Paul is going to come to the climax of his letter, the shortest letter that he writes, but a letter where every verse is going to make a massive punch impact for the gospel, describing and even commanding how Christians' relationships with each other should display the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's going to be your big idea for this morning, that Christians should treat each other in a way that illustrates the gospel. And if you're wondering, what is the gospel? I thought it was just a genre of music. This is the gospel. It's the good news that even though you're separated from God because of your sin from birth, that God made a way for you to have a restored relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life on your behalf and then died a sinner's death on your behalf, rose from the third day, is now in heaven at the Father's right hand, so that you could receive forgiveness in a restored relationship with God by repenting of your sin and turning to God by faith in dependence on Jesus as substitute for the forgiveness of your sin, his death and resurrection in your place. Do that, believe that in your heart, Romans 10 says, confess that with your mouth to the Lord, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And even though many of us in this room may know that already, perhaps not everyone, but most of us, if you know what the gospel is, do you interact with others in a way that displays the gospel? Or are you like that unforgiving servant who received his master's mercy, but did not allow that same mercy to permeate in how he treated others. That's what Paul wants to prevent with Philemon. So as we see from verses 15 through 22, as Paul is going to encourage Philemon and nudge Philemon along, this is a very subtle letter, we're going to see Paul, yes, command Philemon to do something, but even more significantly, 
Paul is going to describe the way that Philemon should relate to Onesimus using the same vocabulary that the New Testament uses to describe our relationship with God. And in fact, there's going to be three facets of the gospel because you may not realize the gospel has several facets to it. We are sanctified in the Lord. We are justified in the Lord. We're reconciled to the Lord. There are many, like a diamond, there are shimmering facets of this one true gem of salvation. Paul, in this section, 15 through 22, is going to encourage Philemon to treat Onesimus in such a way that highlights three specific facets of the gospel. And in doing so, hopefully all of us, myself and each of you, if you have been saved, if you have received the gospel, hopefully the gospel can also permeate your relationships as well. So let's start with the first section. This is going to begin in verse 15. And Paul is going to start out by saying this to Philemon. He says that, For this, perhaps, is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, or slave is the real word there, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. One facet of the gospel that Paul is exemplifying in how he's commanding Philemon to treat Onesimus is the facet of adoption. Your first point is that we as believers should treat other believers especially in a way that illustrates the gospel work of adoption. We overlook just how amazing God has loved us through this facet of the gospel. Because it's almost easy to think of an analogy where there's someone who stands before a judge and he's condemned and he's guilty and the judge is merciful and he chooses to forgive that person of his guilt or to even have his own son pay the penalty of that guilt and let him go free, that's one thing. But adoption takes it one step further. Adoption is that judge looking down on this convicted person, maybe even this criminal who has committed a crime against the judge himself. And he not only forgives him of his debt and of his wrongdoing, but he says, I'm also going to adopt you and make you my son, and have you live with me in my home. That is a dramatic aspect of the gospel that we forget. When you are adopted, you receive a new identity. You take on a new name of the person who adopts you, and you join into a new community, a new family, a new household. When we are saved, We are not just forgiven to remain who we were before. We were forgiven so that we can be adopted as God's children. And it's this very same aspect that we see Paul bring out when he tells Philemon to treat this other Christian, even though he's a runaway slave, as one who has been adopted by God. Notice how Paul says that you should receive him as more than a bondservant. He doesn't say as instead of a bondservant. He says as more than a slave. In addition to being received as a slave, Paul is not calling for Philemon to necessarily emancipate 
Philemon. But he does say that even if Philemon remains your slave, you should see him as more than that. You should see him as someone who has a new identity in Christ, one who has been adopted into the family of God, which is why in verse 16 Paul says you should receive him as a beloved brother. Not just as a brother like a guy you see on the street like, hey, brother, but as a beloved. That's what everyone does to me when they see me on the street, you know. Um, I'm glad you thought that was a joke, yes. Uh, but as loved, one who is understood to be part of the family. He goes on in verse 17 to even say, if you, Philemon, Paul says, consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If I'm your partner, then you should receive Onesimus also as a partner. Paul is calling on Philemon to recognize that because Onesimus is saved, he has a new identity as one who has been adopted into the family of God, and he should be treated accordingly, even if he remains a slave, which Paul is okay with. Even if Onesimus continues to serve under Philemon's rule, Paul has bigger fish to fry than just social justice and emancipation. He wants a very change of the heart in how the church family sees Onesimus. They want him to be loved, because even if he was to be emancipated, slaves could be freed from the duty of their masters, but they would still be looked down upon in their culture as subhuman, as not worthy of honor or respect. And Paul is saying whether he's received as a slave or not a slave, he should more than everything be seen as a brother. This is fulfilling the verse that we've looked at almost every week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, which I think is a great key parallel passage to Philemon. I think it's a great way to understand what's happening in Philemon. That Paul doesn't want Philemon to see Onesimus according to the flesh, like we see in these verses, but according to the Spirit, in the same way that God sees us. When God looks at you, he no longer sees an enemy. He sees a son. He sees Christ as the firstborn and us as adopted children under God the Father. Therefore, we should also see other Christians the way that God sees us. In doing so, with our actions and attitude, we proclaim the gospel. We say, hey, part of the gospel is being adopted by the Lord. It's like John 15, verse 15, where Jesus says, I no longer see you as servants to his disciples, but as friends. The third people, the third person in the Bible, by the way, Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called a friend of God. No one else was called a friend of God until Jesus called the disciples friends at the Last Supper. Isn't that a fun piece of Bible trivia? No longer servants. But he says, you're my now, now my friends. You have a new identity because of the salvation that is being provided for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We are saved because God has predestined us by his grace our eyes and heart by faith to receive the gospel. Verse 4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why would God emphasize that we are adopted children of the Lord? Because even later in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the Ephesians weren't getting along. The Jews were mad at the Gentiles. The Gentiles were mad at the Jews. But when they remember that they are all adopted by the gospel, by salvation into the same family, that wall of hostility 
it's broken down. We can now have peace with each other because we recognize that we all have been adopted. There are no biological children in the family of God. We are all adopted into his family. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all call God Father because he mercifully chose us for that. So as a result, we should treat believers in a way that illustrates the gospel work of adoption. This is what Paul calls Philemon 2. Are you doing this in your life? Do you regard people according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Do you have the same kind of mercy and patience and love towards others that the Father has shown even to you by adopting you into his family? Do you choose to love others in the same way? When we do, we are proclaiming a part of the gospel. Let's now look at the second point. The second point is going to be seen in verse 18. Paul continues to say that if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Verse 19, I, Paul, he writes, writes this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. The facet of the gospel that we see described here, it's a big word. It can be an intimidating word, but it is the gospel work of imputation. That's your second point, that we should treat believers in a way that illustrates the gospel work of imputation. When you think of imputation, it's a complicated word, but really the concept is very simple. You see it here. You see it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see it in many different examples. But when you think of imputation, or when you hear that word imputation, think of this, that imputation is the aspect of salvation in which God transfers the sin of a converted person on to Jesus Christ and transfers Jesus Christ's righteousness onto the converted person. It's a bank term. It's a calculating vocabulary that is used to describe what God does when he saves us. It's as if all of us have this giant red number of debt before the Lord. And that red number of debt on each and every one of our accounts is the debt of our sin. There's no amount that we could give that would ever repay that debt to God to whom we owe. And the wages of not paying that debt is death. But it's as if God takes that debt from our account and he transfers that debt onto the bank account of his son, Jesus Christ. And now it is Jesus who owes your debt and your debt and my debt. And Jesus makes him pay that debt on the cross. That's imputation, that it's been calculated, it's been transferred, it's been counted. The King James Version uses the word reckon, which I love that word, reckon. It reckons our sin onto Christ. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We were dead in our trespasses, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it onto Jesus, nailing it to the cross. That's imputation. But it's only one half of imputation. Because not only does God take our red number of debt and transfer it to Christ's account, he takes 
the wealth and the abundance of righteousness and justice that is in Christ in his account, and he takes that and he transfers it to your account. He takes Christ's righteousness and he reckons it, he legizomai, that's a Greek word, he counts it unto you. Therefore, when you stand before the Father in heaven, he will look at your account and he won't see the red number of your sin. He will have seen that on Christ on the cross. When he looks at your account, he will see the wealth of Christ's righteousness. That is imputation. Isaiah 53, verse 6, on him has been placed the iniquity of us all. It's been, our sin has been imputed on Christ. Peter repeats this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds we have been healed. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 say this. The one who worked, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Our work leads us to the red number of debt, is how I would explain it. But verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, it's charged, it's legizomite, it's reckoned as righteousness. It's very obvious to see how Paul is displaying that in his pleading for Onesimus. He wants Onesimus to have a restored relationship with Philemon, but as a runaway slave, there would likely have been some kind of financial debt that Onesimus would owe to his slave master that would make it hard for that relationship to take place. Therefore, Paul says, whatever he owes you, charge that to my account. Impute that to my account. Reckon it to my account is the vocabulary that Paul uses. Paul usually would not handwrite his letters except for the end of his letters often. But in verse 19, he feels so strongly about this that he writes in his own handwriting, I will repay it. That's how deeply he cares about a restored relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, that he is willing to have whatever debt Onesimus owes imputed to his account. Paul is modeling what Jesus did for you. It is impossible for you to go to heaven without the debt of your sin being paid. That debt can only be paid by Jesus. And the only way to receive the benefit of that imputation that righteousness that is imputed or transferred to your account, it doesn't happen when you're baptized. It doesn't happen when you have some kind of amazing experience or, or you do something that's good enough that that's now applied to your account. The righteousness of Christ is applied into your account only when you have faith. Faith is the moment when you recognize I'm a sinner and Christ is my Savior. I need to depend on him by faith and tell God that. That is the moment when his righteousness is imputed to you as your righteousness. Not when you look at icons, not when you go to church, not when you go through some kind of confirmation or any other ritual is any of that imputed only by faith. Does it seem like I really care about this? Because you should. We should. And we see that described in how Paul wants this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus to play out, displaying the work of imputation, restoring that relationship by paying the debt. Are you willing to do the same for others? Are you willing to forgive the sin that others have committed against you because you have had your sin against God forgiven? Are you willing to be merciful and not be bitter towards others or hold charge against them 
other brothers and sisters in Christ when their account has been cleaned and forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ. If you are not treating others in a way that describes or shows this mercy, this reality of Christ's imputed righteousness, you are failing to live out the gospel in your life. And you are losing a critical opportunity to display an example of what Christ has done for you. Let's now look at the third point. The third point we see Paul end this section with. In verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit. Notice how he calls him brother, by the way. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Fun fact, that word graciously given to you is the same word for pardoned that we see in the New Testament. That he will be graciously received, that God will bring him to Colossae, and that he will be warmly and lovingly accepted. Paul is asking all these things for himself now. He's saying, welcome me into your home, make a spare room for me in your home. But the reason why he's doing that is because, remember, he told Philemon just a couple of verses ago to receive Onesimus the way that you would receive me. So every single thing that Paul is asking for Philemon to do for himself, for Paul, is by default what Paul would also expect Philemon to do for Onesimus. Which brings us to our third point, that this kind of hospitality, this kind of love, this kind of welcoming into the home for Paul and Onesimus shows us that we should treat believers in a way that illustrates the gospel work of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to have a restored relationship. It means to be one with someone. It's similar to the concept that we see in the Old Testament of atonement. There's really no Hebrew word specifically of atonement. Uh, Kippur would be the closest word. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. But the word atonement is an English word from the Middle Ages, and it's literally just the three words, at one meant. To be reconciled with God means that you now have at one meant with the Lord, that you have now been brought together. Remember, Paul did not know Philemon. Not every commentary will actually agree with that. This is my personal suggestion that I'm giving based on my study. We have to remember that Paul had not visited Colossae. Paul wrote to the Colossians, having only heard of them, never met them. Philemon was a Colossian. We have no reason to believe that Paul actually personally knew Philemon. Yet even though he doesn't know Philemon, he is still asking that Philemon would welcome him into his home for there to be a union between them, despite them not knowing each other. This exemplifies exactly what Paul wants to happen between Philemon and Onesimus that even though Onesimus has sinned against Philemon, has done wrong against his slave master, he wants there to be at one mint between the two. He wants the two parties to be reconciled by Philemon graciously opening up his home in forgiveness and patience and mercy to receive his former slave as his beloved brother. I think you get the point that this is exactly what God has done for us. We were separated from God. We used to dwell with God in the garden. Adam and Eve did. But we were separated from his presence because of our sin. He is holy, and because we are unholy, we can't be in his presence. Even when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, 
He had to take off his sandals, Moses did, because he stood on holy ground. But God, by his mercy, chooses to make a way for us to be in his presence again, for us to have at-one-ment with God, atonement, reconciliation with the Lord. And he did this by paying the debt that we owe. He did this by adopting us into his family. Scripture is full of these analogies. Psalm 23, I think, is one of the most overlooked. We always think of the sheep and the shepherd, but we forget that Psalm 23 begins in a pasture, but ends in a palace. It begins with David being a sheep, and it ends with him being a prince. He dwells in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord prepares a table for him. Because he is a shepherd, there is this future hope that someday we will dwell in God's house. And it's completely because the shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. We see this also in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's worth a Bible study this week if you're looking for something to read in Scripture. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, David's political enemy. David, as king, should have been able to kill all of Saul's descendants, including Mephibosheth, who was crippled, by the way. But David decides that he's going to show mercy on Mephibosheth, have him come into his home and live in David's palace despite being a political enemy forever. Why? Because if you read First and Second Samuel, you'll remember that David made a promise to Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan. Because of the promise made to Jonathan, he shows mercy to Mephibosheth. In the same way, God invites us into his home, not because we are good, but because Christ is good. Because of who Jesus is, we can have at one with him. We see this in John 14, verse 3, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare that guest room for you, is a way that you can imagine it. Because of what Jesus is about to do on the cross the next afternoon. And then even in Revelation chapter 21, when we see the grand conclusion of God's redemptive narrative, when all the work has been done, the first coming has taken place and the second coming has taken place and all has been made right, the new heaven and the new earth comes down and what do we see in Revelation 21 verse 3? Behold, not hold the golden streets, not behold your lost loved ones, not behold, no more tears, that comes later. But first, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. At one mint, reconciliation, that's what the gospel is about. Therefore, if you are a Christian who has benefited from this work of reconciliation, you should also, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, be ministers of reconciliation in your relationships. We should be a church family constantly seeking to be hospitable to one another, seeking to be at one minute with each other, going out to eat with each other, getting breakfast with each other, restoring relationships when necessary, confessing our sin to each other, forgiving each other, just as God forgave you. And none of these actions in themselves can replace the words of the gospel and scripture but they are obedient to the Lord in living out and illustrating the truths of the gospel in our relationship. This is ultimately what Paul is having Philemon do and what he wants the church that meets in Philemon's house to do towards this runaway slave. To live out the gospel that they all believe in by seeing him as one who has been adopted into the family of God, one whose righteousness has been imputed on 
and as one who has been reconciled and made uh, at one in right relationship with God. And therefore, they're now being at one right relationship between a slave master and a runaway slave. To close, I want to share with you, Pastor Merritt's going to hate me for this, I want to share with you a Christmas carol. I'm sorry, brother. This was a Christmas carol that used to be controversial. It's not controversial today, but it was controversial back, in, back then. In fact, some churches banned the singing of this Christmas hymn in their churches because of the third verse of this Christmas carol. Uh, even today, when we sing this in churches, some churches don't actually even include this verse because of the hymnals and the traditions that we've received that have removed this third verse. I'll read it and see if you can recognize it. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. This hymn used to be controversial because of American slavery in the United States. There were Christians and there were churches who they would gather on Sundays and they would proclaim the gospel. They would say that Christ has saved us. He's adopted us. He has set us free. He has given us his righteousness. He has reconciled himself to us. But the idea of a Christmas song that would say that the same thing was true for a slave, one who would even be called our brother, that was too much for some so-called Christians. While we may think that we would never do a sin so extreme today, we should evaluate our relationships and ask whether or not we are truly willing to see other believers in Christ as our brothers and sisters, even if they have wronged us, even if we had earthly, worldly reasons why we would not be friends with them, to instead see them the way that Christ sees them and the way that Christ sees us because the only reason why the first half of the stanza is true is because of the second half of the stanza. That sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we, let all within us praise his holy name, Christ is the Lord. Ever, ever we praise you. The reason why we can look at a slave as our brother, the reason why we can look at an enemy as our brother in Christ, if both are saved, is because God has shown us mercy, because Christ is the Lord, because Christ has commanded us to. So let's display the beauty and facets of the gospel, not just in the words that we say, but also in how we relate to each other. Pray with me.